Father, to truly embrace the reality of the resurrection. May it change our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles. Join me in Mark chapter 16. We've already read a little bit today. We read uh, the part of the account in Luke, and we've read the account in John. And we'll be focusing our attention to the account of Mark. There's four different uh, eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. It's one of the best attested events of antiquity. What we're reading, these are real first century documents that have been passed on to us accurately that we get to read and study. Mark chapter 16. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of those pew Bibles. And uh, maybe you don't have a Bible or you've misplaced it. Feel free to just take that home with you today. It's our gift. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, The Bible, it's valuable, it's precious, and uh, we want you to be able to enjoy that. Mark chapter 16. Follow along as I begin reading in verse number 1, Mark 16, verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Well, these days, news tends to travel very fast. Uh, We can find out about events on the other side of the world in an instant on our smartphones and uh, know what's going on in a place that's, you know, hundreds, even thousands of miles away. But sometimes news does not travel as fast as, uh, as we would like. That wasn't the case for a man by the name of Hiro Onoda. Anybody heard of Hiro Onoda, Onoda before? Am I even saying that right? Oh, great. This is good. A story nobody has heard before. He was a soldier in the Imperial Japanese Army during World War II. World War II officially ended September 2nd, 1945. Celebrations broke out all over the world. There's that iconic picture of Times Square that we can, we can all uh, imagine. But for Hiro Onoda, it did not end. You see, he had been sent to Lubang Island in the Philippines, and he'd been ordered to slow the American advance. And given these orders, he figured he would carry them out. So when the Americans liberated the Philippines in February of 1945... He and a few of his comrades in his unit, they were basically like a um, a special forces group, they retreated into the jungle when they figured they would carry out sort of guerrilla operations against the Americans who had come in. And when Japan officially surrendered in September, they didn't get the news, so they did not surrender. Now, the Americans knew that they were out in the jungle, so they showered leaflets on them, being like, hey, guys, the war's over. You can come out, go back to your normal lives. But they figured, now, this is a trick to try to, to get us to surrender. So they rejected the news. They believed it to be propaganda. And when a Japanese general came along and wrote, a sur- wrote the orders out, being like, guys, you can surrender, they believed it. Now it has to be a fake. For the next 29 years, the Filipino government and the Japanese government, they went out of their way to try to get these guys to come out of the jungle and surrender. But they all believed that it was a trick. Now, one by one of his remaining comrades either died in shootouts with the local police or finally just sort of figured, this is dumb, we're going to surrender. 
But after 29 years, Hiro Onoda was still there in the jungle. He's convinced that, he was convinced that the war was still going on. He hid out, and he occasionally raided area farms for survival and had some gun battles with the local police. It was not until March 9, 1974, that Hiro Onoda finally surrendered. And the only way that he would surrender is if his commanding officer came in person and was like, okay, you can, you can hand over your sword, so to speak. The war is over. You see, for 29 years, he fought a war that was over for the rest of the world. News of peace did not make it to him, and when it did, he did not believe it for 29 wasted. Could you imagine wasting 29 years of your life eating bugs in the jungle, fighting a war that was completely and totally over? Well, today we have come together to declare the news that the war is over. We've come today to say that victory has been won by Jesus Christ. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has defeated the grave. The battle has been won. And that news is going out around the world today. The the world is hearing it. This is perhaps the most well-known story. And yet there are millions, if not billions, of the people in the world who are saying, "Mm, fake news, Mm, propaganda, Mm, that's that's a myth. We, We don't believe it to be true. Jesus has defeated sin at the cross. He has defeated death at the empty tomb. And we're here today to tell each one of you to lay down your arms and surrender to the risen king. He is alive. He is risen. And what does this demand of you and me? Not just, hey, come to church once a year and sing a few songs, go on an Easter egg hunt. That's all that Jesus requires. No, this requires of you and me that we surrender to the risen king. He's won the victory. He has pulverized the enemy, and he calls us to come over to his side. Now, I'm guessing that everybody in this room has heard the Easter story multiple times in your life. This is sort of your, it's almost predictable. We come together on this day, one of the four accounts will be read and preached. But I want us to go back to the first century, because this is a real event. Not, I don't want to read this through the lens of, you know, I've come to church every year, and Grandma brought me, and so here I am today to kind of honor her. But let's read this as if we're hearing it for the first time. So maybe you're here today, and deep down in your heart, you're thinking, Resurrections, like dead people coming back to life. It's a nice story. But really, can that, can, that, can that actually happen? Did that really happen? And maybe that's you today. You, you, you have real doubts, real questions about it. Listen, this is a place, I hate using the phrase, but this is a safe space to ask questions and to have doubts. Like, I don't want people to only come to church who are like, we already agree with everything. We want you to come and feel like, hey, if I've got questions, if I've got doubts, I can ask them. I'm available I'd love having these conversations. I believe this is true. I think there's good reasons for believing this to be true. Or maybe you're here today, and it's just sort of a nice sentimental story. You're like, man, I hear this story every year. It kind of makes me cry, and like, it's really awesome. And I'll look forward to kind of thinking about this again next year at Easter. So it's a sentimental story, a nice story, but it doesn't have really any relevance for what you're going to do with your life. I want to speak to you today as well. Or maybe you believe it to be true. But it's just not important. It hasn't been important to you. Wherever you're at, I want us to be confronted today with just the facts of Mark 15, Mark 16, regarding Jesus' victory. And these are facts that we don't just like, cool, I got them. I'm going to remember those for the quiz on Friday. These are facts that we embrace. These are facts that will change our lives. These are facts that that could transform your eternal destiny. So let's go ahead and dive in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary... And Salome, they brought sweet spices, they might come and anoint, anoint him. We, get the, we, we sort of drop into the middle of the story. We sort of parachute into the middle of this event that's going on. 
we meet these three women who are slowly picking their way along a rocky path in the early morning gloom. They set out when it's, when it's still night. As they come, the dawn begins to come. By the time they arrive at the tomb, it is now sunrise. As they set out, there's still a few stars overhead that are, that are sort of speckling the sky, and the dawning day is beginning to nibble away at the eastern edge of the sky. So who are these three? Well, we've got Mary Magdalene. We know about her from the Gospel account. She had been, been controlled by demons, and Jesus had rescued her and transformed her. She, she owed everything to Jesus. He had completely delivered her and changed her from a life of shame and despair. We also have mentioned here Mary, the mother of James. Okay, Mary's a pretty popular name. Just when you read Mary, don't just think Mary, the, the virgin mother of Jesus. But there's Mary's all over the place. It's just the Hebrew name Miriam, right? Popular name. And then there's Salome, who's, uh, we find out earlier in Mark 15, verse 40, that um, there, she's mentioned as well, other accounts we find out. She's the mother of James and John. She's the one who came up to Jesus being like, oh, Jesus, can you let my two boys sit on either side of your throne in the kingdom? Kind of audacious. That's who these women are. Now, why am I pausing to note them? Well, first glance, they're sort of extras in the cast, right? Like, the, the, the main character here is going to be Jesus, and he's going to be alive. He's the, you know, the main actor. He's the, the main guy. These are sort of like the passers-by in the street, right? Like, kind of the background people. Jesus, of course, is central. Nonetheless, these three are important for Mark. Look back in uh, chapter 15, verse 47, just the verse right before this. We have in Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. Back in chapter 15 and verse 40. And there were also women looking on afar off. They're at Calvary. They're at the cross. Among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and of Joseph and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him. In other words, in just the, the space of like 10 verses, Mark names these three women by name three different times. Now, that should strike us as kind of odd because the, the gospel account is very compact. We don't have any extra details. There's no just sort of unnecessary stuff here. There's no extra info just to kind of fluff the story. The fact that Mark mentions him in verse 40, mentions him again in verse 47, then mentions him again in the beginning of chapter 16 means that this is an important aspect of the story. The, 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 this repetition is telling us that these three women, looking at the story through their eyes, is the vehicle that Mark is going to use to tell us some very important facts. All of that groundwork to get us into the first fact that we have to come to grips with. The fact of Jesus' life. We're told that these three women in, verse, in Mark 15, verse 41, who also, when he was in Galilee, they followed him, ministered unto him. So Galilee re references the northern part of Israel. You can go there today. We're dealing with real places, by the way, real events in history. They, this is to say these women followed Jesus from the beginning. You read the, the Gospel of Mark. So they were there when he fed the 5,000. They were there when he healed. They were there when he opened blind eyes. They were there when he made the mute speak. They saw his miracles. They heard his sermons. They sat at his feet. They were there when, they, when, when thousands of growling stomachs were filled by a miraculous meal that Jesus made. They saw all of that. And here they are all the way down in Jerusalem, 60 miles to the south. They were so devoted to Jesus, they followed him down to the Passover, which would be his final Passover. And they were there when he was betrayed and when he died at the cross. This is to say, in these verses, we get kind of the summary of the entire gospel. Now, I'm not, we, we don't have time today to recap all of the gospel of Mark. But if you're curious, go home and sit down for like two hours, and you could read the entire gospel of Mark. It's the oldest and the most compact account of the life of Jesus. 
absolutely stunning. And here's what is even more staggering. These women and also the disciples who followed Jesus, they hang out with Jesus for three years. They watch him. They listen to him. You, know, you get to know someone pretty well if you spend all day, every day with them for, for three years. And they came to the conclusion that Jesus was not merely a teacher. They came to the conclusion that he was the Son of God. They came to the conclusion that he was the Messiah. Who is Jesus according to Mark? Jesus is God's Son. Real historical figure, real person who walked to the earth, but God in the flesh. This is the first fact that we all have to come to grips with. The life of Jesus, through his, through his life, he, he works these miracles, shows who he is. Conclusive evidence, conclusive proof that he is the promised Messiah. Conclusive proof that he is God's son. Not just a good teacher, not just a philosopher, not just a good moral example, but God in the flesh. Question, do you believe that? I don't just mean like, oh yeah, I think that's historically true. But do you really believe that Like you, you stake your life on the fact that Jesus is who he said he is? That's the first fact. Okay, the second fact, again, using these women as kind of the vehicle in the story to just understand what's going on here. The second fact is the fact of Jesus' death. Okay, in verse 40 uh, of, again, Mark 15, it says these women were looking on afar off. Now, the question is, where are they? They're at the crucifixion. All of Mark 15 is taken up with, with recounting the, the, the story, the historical narrative of Jesus of Nazareth being crucified. Here's the thing about crucifixion. It was absolutely horrific. It was shameful. In fact, it was so shameful that Roman law said that it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. Like it was just inhumane, the most horrific torture that could be fathomed. The Roman says you can't do this to a Roman citizen. Roman sources don't talk about crucifixion. It's kind of this ugly thing. They're like, yeah, we know it goes on, but we don't want to describe it or talk about it because it is just that bad. Pretty much most of what we know about crucifixion comes from these four gospel accounts. By the way, it's been verified by archaeological evidence. They've dug up bones in Jerusalem where they find a heel bone with a spike driven through it. Like that, 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 that fits the story quite well with the, the nails being used and the, 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 the holes that Thomas wants to see. Don't have time today to go through all of Mark 15, but let me give you a recount. What had, what had happened? Well, all of the... Male disciples of Jesus had fled when he was arrested on Thursday night. They'd run off in terror and fear. Jesus had gone through an illegal trial with the Sanhedrin. They don't have the Sanhedrin's the local Jewish religious rulers. They don't have the ability, they don't have the authority to execute someone. So they got to go to the Roman governor, a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate, and twist his arm to get him to have Jesus executed. So first thing in the morning, kind of think about this. Everybody was up late Thursday night celebrating the Passover. They've gorged themselves on a big feast. They've drunk lots of wine. They're sleeping it all off. So while most people are sleeping, they get this quick you know, trial together, and they condemn Jesus. And by 9 o'clock, he is on the cross. Now, before that happened, he would have been scourged to within an inch of his life. He would have been forced to drag his cross down the streets of Jerusalem with a big sign around his neck saying what his crime was. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. His crime from the Romans' perspective was treason. His crime from the Romans' perspective was claiming to be a rival king. So here he goes to the cross. The cross was a horrific scene. Crucifixion was inventively cruel. And here's these women standing, watching as their king, their Messiah, their beloved master, is being hung out, pinned to a piece of wood with spikes like he's a piece of meat. There he is writhing in agony. 
Once crucifixion happened, the outcome's inevitable. No one ever survived crucifixion. There's an account in Josephus during the, uh, the, the Roman-Jewish war where you know, Josephus is a Jewish guy who's in cahoots with the Romans, and the Romans are crucifying one of his friends, and he's like, hey, guys, do you think we could take him off the cross? And they take the guy off the cross, and he still dies anyway. Like, nobody survives crucifixion. So in Mark 15, look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land till the ninth hour. From noon to three o'clock on Good Friday, it's a darkness. And at the ninth hour, three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by, when they heard us, said, behold, he calls for Elijah. One fan, ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar, put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, that is, breathed the last. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, that's astounding. Through the, from the lips of a pagan Roman centurion, we get this incredible confession. This is the son of God. There were also the women looking on afar off, verse 40. So Jesus has now died. They've stood there for those six hours watching him writhe in agony and finally die, tortured to death. These same women who were going to the tomb Sunday morning were there Friday afternoon when the Savior died. He truly died. A Roman soldier with a spear made sure to verify that fact. But the Jesus in whom they had trusted, dead. The kingdom for which they had hoped, dead. The king for whom they had longed, dead. The dream to which they had clung, dead. All hope is gone. Now, I want to ask this question. Why does this fact matter? Because at one level, it's just sort of a historical lesson. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. Established historical fact. But why does this matter? Why does Matthew, Mark, Luke, John give us excruciating detail about the crucifixion? Why do we have four accounts? Why does Paul, this, this great early Christian, park on the, the fact that Jesus died on the cross? This is a really odd thing to build a new religion on. Again, from the Roman perspective, those who are crucified are just trash. They're garbage. They would literally take the bodies and dump them into a mass grave. It was the most humiliating of deaths. It is by no means certain or expected that, that you know, a Messiah gets crucified and people are like, hey, he's really the son of God. That does not follow. There were other Messiah figures at this time. There was a guy named Judas before the time of Jesus. Romans got rid of him. The movement died out. After the time of Christ, during the, the revolt in 70, there was another guy who claimed to be Messiah. The Romans killed him, movement died out. Simon bar Kokhba in, in the 100s claims to be Messiah, the Romans kill him, the movement dies out. So what is different about Jesus? Like there's plenty of other people like Jesus who claim to be Messiah who get killed, and it's all over. Not only is it going to be answered by the resurrection, but why does the cross matter? Well, the rest of the Bible tells us Peter, who was one of the 12 apostles, he would write decades later, for Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. You see, the death of Jesus is not just the execution of someone who the Romans thought might be a possible traitor. It is the substitutionary atonement of God's Son. Here's what I mean by that. You and I are sinners who deserve God's wrath. We have all sinned. We are rebels against God. Sin goes down to the depths of our heart. And sin must be paid for. Sin must be atoned for. The wages of sin is death. 
So what is Jesus doing on the cross? He is standing in as our substitute. He is taking our place. He's taking the penalty. He's taking the punishment. He's taking the wrath that you and I deserve because of our rebellion against God. Jesus' death is in the place of sinners, and guess what? You and I are sinners. That's, where the, that's why this matters. Otherwise, it's just another crucifixion. Thousands of people were crucified. This one is different because it is Jesus suffering the wrath of God for sin. Isaiah 53 makes this abundantly clear. Written 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah prophesied, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus takes our place. What does it mean? It means substitution, him taking our place. It means our salvation. There's four different images the New Testament will use to sort of work out the idea of what is happening at the cross. One of those is is justification. Is God declaring those who are guilty righteous? Here's how justification happens. It doesn't say God justifies the good people, but it's the ungodly. Hey, we're sinners, and God, on the basis of what Jesus does, looks at us and says, not guilty. That's incredible. How can God do that and still be just? Ever wondered that? How can God forgive sin and still be just in his treatment of sin? It's by taking the penalty and putting it on Jesus. Another image is redemption. Jesus buying us out of the slave market of sin to make us his own. He pays the price so that we belong to him. Another image is reconciliation. We're hostile to God. We're at war with God. We don't want anything to do with God. And the, 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 the cross of Jesus is like a bridge to reconcile God and sinners. But I think the key image is the image, the word, big $50 word, propitiation, satisfaction. Jesus satisfies the wrath of God against our sin. Now, all of this is like, okay, that sounds really theological, kind of boring. Unless you and I are sinners who have no hope of saving ourselves, right? The, the, the cross only is meaningful insofar as we see it as the only hope of our forgiveness. If you're here today and you see yourself as just sort of a good person, you don't need the cross. Why would Jesus die if we could earn our way to heaven? seems like a complete colossal waste. It, it, it seems like a complete and total disaster. But let's just pause for a second. Think about the depths of our sin. Probably the most basic standard we could think of this morning of what's right and wrong would be, say, the Ten Commandments, right? The Tenth Commandment says, don't, don't covet. Thou shalt not covet. Yet how many of us are guilty of desiring and wanting something or someone that is not ours? Just the act of desiring that is breaking God's law. Who here is not guilty of coveting at some point, of desiring, of having desires in our heart that are contrary to God? You know what the penalty is for breaking God's law? Death. Because when we break God's law, we're not just sinning against each other, we're sinning against God. And God is infinite. Just to illustrate this way, you know, say we're walking out of church today, and you're like, man, Pastor Sam, I didn't like that message, and you just kind of shoved me. That was a terrible message, hated it, it was lousy. Okay, well, why'd you do that? That doesn't make any sense. I may or may not press charges, probably not. I'm not going not to bring down the hammer on you. But let's say I'm the president of the United States, and you come up to me, the president of the United States, and you come and shove me. You better believe that the penalty is going to be much more serious because of the individual that has sinned against 
right? Well, that's the same as the same is true with sin. Because sin is against God, and because God is infinite, and because God is valuable, the penalty of sin is eternity in hell. Now, move on through the Ten Commandments. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, don't lie. All of us are guilty of telling a lie. Call people who tell lies liars. Revelation 21.8 says, All liars will have their place in the lake of fire. Is that not really troubling to you to realize, okay, I've told lies, I've coveted, I deserve hell. That is the testimony of the Bible. Now, that maybe is really offensive to you this morning to say that just coveting and just telling lies makes me deserving of hell. But the question then becomes, am I going to be the one who decides, or is it God? Well, I think it makes sense to say God, and his word is the one who's going to determine what is right and what is wrong and what the penalty is. The Bible goes on, the Ten Commandments goes on to say, thou shalt not steal. Stealing anything, just stealing from your employer's time, makes us guilty of breaking that commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery, any kind of sexual sin, even lusting after someone who God has not given you as your spouse, is adultery of the heart. Here's my point. We are guilty sinners before God. In God's eyes, I think every one of us in this room are thieves, adulterers. We go on to murderers. Jesus says if you're angry or hateful towards someone, it's as if you murdered them in your heart. Liars. And we're going to stand before God on Judgment Day. Now, let me ask you a question. A holy God, a perfect judge on Judgment Day, and he's got a bunch of people who are liars, thieves, murderers, adulterers. Will the verdict be guilty or innocent? Well, justice would demand that the verdict be guilty for every single person on the planet. And so maybe God will just be nice and kind of let a few of us scooch in there. No, God's just. If if there was a judge in the city of Mobile that's like, hey, I'm a really nice dude, and I'm going to let murderers or rapists just kind of roam the streets, we'd be like, that's not a good judge. Justice demands that sin be dealt with, right? At the cross, what is Jesus doing? He is taking the justice, the penalty, the payment that my sin and your sin deserves, and he's absorbing it in himself. That's why the cross matters. If we don't understand that, this is just historic trivia that's like interesting, but it doesn't matter. There are multitudes today who refuse to see their sin. There are self-righteous myriads, and for them, the cross is meaningless. So do you see your sin as God sees it? Do you see your sin as serious? Do you see your sin as deserving hell? And do you see the cross as your sole means of escape to be right with God, to be forgiven, to be justified, for God's wrath to be satisfied? That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. It's not just that Jesus came to sort of make nice people better. No, Jesus came to make dead people live. Jesus came to take rebels and reconcile them to God. He came to take people who were at war with him and bring them into his family. Jesus bore the wrath that our sin deserved. He satisfied the justice that our law-breaking incurred. He took our place. He bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. That's the second fact, and I park on that because that is so crucial for us to understand. And if you're here today, and you've never really grasped that before, you'd be like, yeah, I kind of think of myself as a Christian, but you've never quite gotten that. I would encourage you today. Today would be a great day to put your trust in Jesus Christ and truly become a Christian, not just a cultural Christian, but an actual Christian. Okay, we must hasten on fact number three. So fact one, the fact of his life. His life bears out the fact that he's God's son. Fact two is his death in our place. Fact three is his burial. Verses 42 to 47 of Mark 15 recounts what happens. So Jesus passes, Jesus dies at 3 p.m. on Friday. 
What's going to happen Saturday is it becomes the Sabbath. Under Jewish law, no work can be done. But the way that, that their calendar worked, as soon as the sun goes down and five stars come out, the new day begins. Which means this. They've got to work quickly. They've got about three hours before Sabbath officially begins on Friday night to get Jesus off the cross, to get his body prepared for burial, and to get him into the tomb. The last thing that these women and the remaining followers of Jesus could do would be to ensure that he gets a dignified burial, to make sure that he's not just slung like a piece of trash into a common grave as the Romans were wont to do. So they would have to hurry in these three hours. They would have to get permission from Pilate. We can read about that. You can read that on your own. A guy named Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pontius Pilate. He gets, his, gets permission from him to get the corpse of Jesus. And then we're told in verse 46, take a look at that. He brought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in the sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock. So we, we have the, the image, right, of the tomb with the stone rolled in front of it. The way the Jews bury people is different than the way we bury people. You wrap the body up in expensive linen. In between each layer, you're putting spices and ointments to sort of mask the odor of decomposition. The body would be placed on a shelf in a cave with a stone over the entrance. Come back a year or two later, once the body has decomposed, collect the bones, and they would put them in these big boxes called ossuaries, bone boxes. If you go to Israel, you can see these today. The family name would be on the box. There's the, the bones. That's fully what they expected to happen to Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 47 is important because these three women were there at the burial. So they're there at his death. They're there at his ministry in Galilee. They're there at the burial, and they were there at the empty tomb. Why this is important is it establishes kind of a chain of evidence. Maybe you think, well, maybe they went to the wrong tomb, and they're like, oh, no, Jesus isn't here, and then this myth about the resurrection gets out. That doesn't seem to be a possibility. It says they saw where he was laid. They knew which tomb to go to. They didn't get lost in the dark. They saw the body laid in that place. So with utmost devotion, they take the body of Jesus to the tomb. With care, they watch as it's laid out on the chiseled shelf of that cave. And with evening and the Sabbath quickly approaching, they made plans to come back first thing Sunday morning. It seems as if they were, were rushed and they couldn't do the job the way they needed to with the right spices and, and all the things that needed to be done for the body. They can't do it Saturday. It's the Sabbath, so they're going to come back early first thing Sunday morning. That's why they're coming to the tomb. I'll just note this. Why does the burial matter? It shows us that Jesus truly died. He, he, he's really dead. He's put into a grave. Everybody knows he's dead. This is not some kind of like he passed out and he's in the tomb and then he kind of wakes up because of the cold air. Like people don't survive crucifixions. He's really dead. He's tasted death for every man, the writer of Hebrews says. And he's buried into the very ground from which Adam was taken. Which brings us to the fourth and climactic fact that we must embrace. His life, his death, his burial, and now we come to his resurrection. We read this account uh, at the beginning of the message, Mark 16. By the way, just in case you're wondering, these chapter divisions aren't original. They're just kind of put there to help us find stuff. So I think we're meant to read this as sort of one seamless narrative from Mark 15 to Mark 16. But here come the women. They're coming back to, to finish the job of anointing the body. They're bringing all these sweet ointments. Would have been very, very expensive to purchase. They, they would have gone out late Saturday night as, when, when the Sabbath was over, purchased them. And here they're coming early, early in the morning before the sun even comes up. I just want to note 
sort of three lines of evidence here in this resurrection account that shows they know what they're talking about. We get this mention of what they saw. You notice in verse 4, and when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away. And they entered in, and they saw a young man. So they, they are eyewitnesses. They come to the tomb. They go into the tomb. They run into an angel, but Jesus is not there. What is surprising to them is not the presence of the angel, but the absence of Jesus. You come to a tomb being like, I expect a dead guy to be in the tomb. And you come in, and there's no dead guy, and there's an angel. Like, that would scare the daylights out of any of us. By the way, angels in the Bible, they're not like little chubby babies with wings flying around. They're they're fearsome warriors that when people saw them would, like, fall over, pass out in terror. So the angel speaks to them and says, you know, "Don't, don't be affrighted. Don't be terrified. But here's the point I want to make here. They saw the empty tomb. This is the great fact on which Christianity rests. It's not simply the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Romans in AD 33 on the 14th of Nisan, though that is crucial. The the, the fact that is ultimately important as to whether Christianity is true or false is the fact that the tomb was empty, that there was no body, and no body was ever produced. You say, well, maybe, you know, they, like the Romans stole it. They didn't want it to become kind of a shrine and to carry on the movement. Well, if they did that, it probably would have been a really good idea to come along later when everybody starts to believe that Jesus raised from the dead to be like, guys, here's the body. We, we stole it. Like, your movement is dumb. Or if the Jewish leaders had done the same thing, why not produce the body? The reality is neither the Romans nor the Jewish leaders took the body. The disciples certainly didn't steal it. They're off hiding off in a locked room because... Their knees are knocking together out of terror. The most plausible, logical, reasonable explanation here is that Jesus actually did what he said he would do, which was rise from the dead. So the tomb was and is empty. Verse 6, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. One of the Gospels puts it this way. Why do you seek the dead or the living among the dead? He's the living one. Why are you looking for him in a tomb? He's alive. He has risen. We're talking about the bodily resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. The same body that went into the tomb came out of that tomb on that Easter morning. So they saw the tomb was empty. They come. The stones rolled away. We're told in Matthew's account that an angel had rolled the stone away. By the way, not to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses in. They saw the empty tomb, and then they heard the angel's message. Verses 6 and 7, the angel says, be not affrighted. Now, the sense of this in Greek is stop being terrified. Like they're in the middle of being terrified, being surprised. Sort of the sense of the angel's message is this. You guys seem really shocked and surprised that Jesus is not here. Like, why are you surprised? He said this was going to happen. That's kind of the sense of what's going on. Stop being surprised, You're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, that's the the human name of Jesus, real human guy, real historical figure, which was crucified. Like he really died, he really was crucified, he really was tortured to death. He's not here, he is risen. He has risen, one word in Greek. He was raised by whom? By God. Sometime early that morning, Jesus passed through the grave clothes, passed through the entrance to that tomb, and resurrected to life. He wasn't in there like banging on the walls trying to get out, but physically resurrected with a glorified body that has greater capacities than any body that we know of. So the women came looking for a dead Messiah. Instead, they're met with news of a risen king. 
He walked out glorified in the very same body that had been beaten and crucified and killed, which means this, he is victorious over sin and over death. So the angel says, behold, okay, well, behold's a nice sort of King James sounding word, like what does behold mean, like, whoa, behold. It's the idea of come and look, he's inviting investigation, come and examine the evidence for yourself, come behold the place where they laid him. So the angel's message is the message of a promised resurrection, but it's also the message of a promised restoration. Look at verse 7, go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. Now, what's the significance of that? Mentioned that Thursday night that Jesus was arrested. All the disciples, the 11, you know, remember Judas has gone out and betrayed him. The 11 apostles run for the hills in absolute terror. None of them stick with Jesus. Peter tries following from a distance. John is at the cross for part of the crucifixion. But by and large, they're off hiding out in absolute fear. They blew it big time, right? The moment where they needed to stand for Jesus, they melted away in fear. Peter, uh, of all people, the guy who says, I will never deny you. Little girl comes along and says, oh, you are with Jesus. And he, he denies it, not just once. He, he, he denies any association with Jesus three times. He failed. He did like the, the equivalent of a spiritual face plant over and over and over again. If ever there was a guy who you'd be like, you blew it too bad, no restoration for you, buddy, it would be Peter. The angel's saying, go your way and tell his disciples, and Peter, that he goes before you, is to say, even though you've blown it, even though you've rejected Jesus, even though you've failed in the moment of trial, he will restore you. He'll bring you back again. He's going before you. It's not just, oh, he'll be there ahead of you, but it's the idea of he's going to take up leadership again, leading the disciples along. You will resume your place in rank behind him. That is incredible. This message of saying, go and tell us to say, the very men who failed so spectacularly and fled in terror would be forgiven, would be restored, would be commissioned. I don't know about you, that's really good news. That's really good news because even on my best day, I still need God's grace. Even on the day where I think I have it all together, I don't. There's not a day that goes by, beloved, that we, that we are beyond the need of God's grace. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you've begun to think, oh, I'm actually pretty good, I'm better than other people, Go back and read, the, read these accounts because that's not who we are. We are sinners who are saved by grace. What if we as Christians had that attitude of, I'm a sinner saved by grace? What if instead of trying to cover over our sin with hypocrisy and judgmentalism, we had that humble attitude of recognizing, I'm like Peter, I'm like these guys, and I need his forgiveness, I need his grace, and my hope is not found by looking at myself and by fluffing up my image and by judging other people, but by looking to Jesus. What if we did that? The resurrection of Jesus means the unleashing of divine grace and generosity for those who have fallen. It means that there is the way that has been thrown open for whosoever will turn to Jesus in faith. So the women that morning, they, they, they saw the empty tomb. They heard the, the message. The end of the message says, there shall ye see him. We don't get it in Mark's account, but we can read about it. We've read about it already in John's account and in Luke's account. that They encountered the risen Christ. Now, this is key, right? The tomb could be empty for any number of reasons. But if there was a guy that you put in a tomb, and then you run into him at Walmart later that day, you'll be like, hmm, that, that's, that's interesting, right? If you go to a funeral and you, you know, the casket's empty, and then the guy who's supposed to be in the casket's like wandering around the church, you'd be like... Whoa, that's crazy, right? Like, and, and so Mary Magdalene, she runs into Jesus in the garden that very day. 
Later that morning, two disciples are walking down the road to Emmaus, and Jesus comes in and joins their conversation. They don't recognize him right away. Maybe grief, certainly spiritual blindness. By the end of the conversation, they realize this is Jesus. That evening, all the disciples are huddled together. They're all afraid, right? They're, they're hardly being heroic. Jesus shows up. They all see him. According to 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus even later on appeared to 500 people all at the same time. They encountered the risen Christ. In fact, one guy by the name of Paul, Jesus made a special appearance to him as he went on the road to Damascus and utterly transformed his life. If you're here today and you're maybe you're a skeptic, you're not a Christian, this is all new to you, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is what other explanation is there for the origins of Christianity? Dead messiahs, crucified kings don't really make great foundations for revolutionary religious movements. They just don't. People believing a lie and all being like, hey, we know he really didn't rise from the dead, but let's just tell everyone that he did. Don't undergo torture and death to preserve that lie. They certainly don't all agree on the same story and keep their story straight. Yeah, that's precisely what the apostles did. That's precisely what these women did. Over the next four or five decades, they suffered horrendous persecution. And they never recanted the story. They never said, all right, we're going to go ahead and just tell you it's all a lie, a big conspiracy we made up. No, they believed with all of their hearts. At the very least, we have to recognize that these women, that the apostles, that the writers of the Gospels, genuinely believed that Jesus rose from the dead, and they believed that strong enough that they were willing to proclaim that message and to die for it. Why? If it didn't happen, what other explanation do you have for that? Again, the most reasonable explanation from the evidence that we have is to say that Jesus really rose again from the dead. You're like, yeah, but that doesn't happen. Unless you're God. Right? If you're God who created the entire universe, rising again from the dead is not a big deal. Right? If you can slam dunk on a full NBA basketball goal, coming to one of those little kitty basketball goals in the swimming pool and slam dunking on that is not a big deal. If you can create the universe, then you can definitely rise again from the dead. They encountered the risen Christ. Now, these are all facts that we have to come to grips with, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. But I don't want us just to walk out of here being like, okay, I agree with those facts. Listen, there are thousands of people in the city of Mobile who are going to go to church services today, and this will be the only church service they go to until next year when this rolls around. You know what the early Christians did? They believed this was so important and so revolutionary. They're like, we need to get together every Sunday, the day that he rose from the dead, and celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, one of the signs that you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, is you're eager to get together with other people who believe the same thing. Seems to me difficult to say that I'm a Christian, but I just never go to church. It's like saying I'm a husband, but I never go home to be with my family. Okay, you might claim the title, but you're certainly not living out that reality. The early Christians did that. What's more, the early Christians declared the name of Jesus and told other people about it. But I think the most important response that you must make to this is to repent and believe. Repentance means turning away from your sin, turning away from all ways of trusting yourself, turning away from your rebellion, turning away from your self-rule, and turning to Jesus. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, if you believe with your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So believing, confessing. 
Now, that's just more than going through the motions. Confessing means I, I believe it and I'm publicly declaring it. What are you declaring? Jesus is Lord. Now, what does that mean? Lord is not just a nice title of respect. It is to say that he is God. I confess that Jesus is God and I'm willing to die for that. And it's to say even more than that. Jesus is the Lord of my life. He is the king. He is the master. He calls the shots. Being a Christian is a whole lot more than just sort of acknowledging these facts. It means Jesus has real control and sway in your life. That's what it requires. If anyone's going to come after me, Jesus says, you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Those are the demands of the gospel. It's not just I was baptized at one time. Some of you here, maybe that's your, your hope, is I'm going to heaven because I one time got baptized. Or I'm going to heaven because I'm a, I'm a nice person. And you very well may be a nice person. But we don't, sin is not atoned for by getting wet in a baptistry or sprinkled by a priest. Sin is not atoned for by just sort of our niceness to people in our lives. Sin is atoned for only through the death of Jesus. If you are trusting in anything other than Jesus and him alone, you are lost and on your way to hell. So what are you trusting? If you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And if the answer involves, well, I've done this or I've done that, that's the wrong answer. The only answer is Christ died for my sins and I'm holding on to him and him alone. That's it. So will you acknowledge Jesus as God? Will you acknowledge him as master? So maybe you're here today and you're just kind of here because you know, grandma brought you to church when you were growing up and it's kind of a thing you do every year because you're like, I like grandma, right? And this is just what we do. It's tradition. My question to you is, do you really believe this is true and do you believe this is relevant? Maybe you're here today and you're a skeptic. You're like, I, I don't know if this is true or not, and I'm, I'm questioning, I'm doubting, I'm exploring. Here's my question. Did this really happen? Do you believe that this really happened? Is it plausible that this happened? Or perhaps you're here, you, you, you're like, yeah, I agree this happened, it's true, but it just doesn't seem that important to my life. I've got other things I'd rather do. I'd rather go out and engage in my hobbies and do these other things. Does this matter? Listen, if, if this is our only hope of saving our souls from hell, it matters immensely. Jesus, either he is infinitely important or he is not important at all. The only thing he cannot be is moderately important. Like, yeah, I like him. And, you know. no, is, he, is he your Lord? Is he your everything? Is he your treasure? This story tells us that the victory over sin has been won. The war is over. The enemy has been defeated. We contribute nothing to that victory except the sin that made it necessary. And this is the good news that we shout from the rooftops of, as Christians, that Jesus is God's son, that we are sinners, and he died for us and was buried, and he rose again, and he's alive, and he offers eternal life, forgiveness to all who will come to him. So will you come out of the jungles of your self-righteousness and your self-trust and come bow the knee in surrender? to the risen King. Father, would you please work in our hearts?